Blog Talk Radio. Well, here we go. There's the intro. pre-recording this morning for a future show, but uh, those that are listening live, welcome. It really is amazing to see all the different ways by which the Father in every age calls men and women, young and old, people of every race, every tribe, to His Son, Jesus Christ, to the forgiveness of sins and to the call to salvation. My guest today, David L. Gray, heard that call of Christ, well, in a very dark spot in his life, as we'll hear. And it was that voice, that call, he says, which moved him from the column of agnostic, at first, to Protestant Christian, and then to the Catholic Church. He was born and raised in Warren, Ohio. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from Central State University there. But he was also, I think, before all of this, uh, we'll find out in a moment, uh, a Prince Hall Freemason. And we'll talk about what branch of Freemasonry that was. And again, I think this was before all of this. And... You know, he's written a book uh, on that particular subject. Uh, what is Prince Hall Freemasonry? And we'll find out. Uh, he is also today the author of uh, a new book that will certainly be of interest to our listeners, um, in addition to the other one. It's called Dead on Arrival, The Seven Fatal Errors of Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. So good morning, David. How are you? Well, David, are you with us? Hmm. Well, let's uh, let me look at my switchboard here. Are you with us, David? Yeah, I'm right here. Can you hear me? Oh, there you are. I'm sorry. Right. We seem to have we seem to have had uh, you know a little bit of a technical problem here. You know, they've given me a new switchboard since oh, they okay. yeah since they changed the format. You know, and I'm still trying to trying to get a hold of it. But I had just uh, essentially given the intro. And um, did you hear any of that? Yeah, sure I did. I sure did. How oh, okay. Oh, well, very good. Now, you know, what, I guess what I'm going to ask you to do right away, if you can, is to give us a give us a timeline. Um, you know, as to put all of this into perspective for us, a little bit of a chronology. Um, you don't have okay. to start with your birth, but you could uh, start with your second birth. Uh, it's up to you. <laughs> okay. Well. Yeah, I was born in 1972 in Warren, Ohio, like you said. Um, graduated from Warren G. Harding High School there in 1991, then went to Central State University. That's down here right outside of Dayton, Ohio. Um, by the time I arrived at Central State University, I was, you know, probably considered a Protestant. You know, I grew up went to various different Protestant churches. Um, for a time, my mother was a Jehovah Witness. Um, my grandparents, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians. So I never belonged to a church, but um, I did believe, 
you know, somewhat in, in God and didn't know a whole lot about Jesus. Mm-hmm. By the time I got to Central State University, um, I, I got involved in things there. Um, I dabbled a little bit in Islam, um, the nation of Islam, the branch of it. Um, yeah, so, and then when I was a sophomore there, that's when I began um, involved in Freemasonry, Prince Hall Freemasonry. That's, like, as you said, the majority, predominantly black branch of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. My father, my stepfather, my grandfather had been Freemasons, so something I knew about as a child, something I always wanted to do. Didn't think I was going to have the opportunity to do it so much later in life, so an opportunity presented itself there when I was still a sophomore in college. I jumped on it, and um, it, it became my life. I mean, I really immersed myself into Freemasonry, and I um, pursued a number of goals, and the personal goals was the goal of mine to become the Grand Master of Ohio, <clears throat> a number of things. So, um, yeah, so I... Uh, as I've been seeing on the Freemasonry and I'm studying it, I'm immersing myself into it, into its teaching and things like that. I've I become more confused about myself spiritually and my faith. Well, look, I wonder if we could uh, just define the kind of uh, Freemasonry you were involved in. What exactly is Prince Hall Freemasonry? Uh, I think it's a it's a new uh, name for our listeners, for some of them. Sure, yeah. Well, well, Prince Hall, you know, the name Prince Hall comes from the individual Prince Hall himself. He was an abolitionist in Boston in the late 1700s. He himself became a a Freemason. The story is that he had been rejected by the um, Caucasian or white Masons in that area of Boston. Mm -hmm. So Irish Lodge that came into town, Irish Lodge Regiment um, number 441, that came into town, and Prince Hall and a number of men, went there, and they made them Masons. And so these are supposed to be the first black Masons, made Masons, in the United States. Right up here so, in Boston. Yeah, yeah, right there in Boston. Wow. Wow. So, just all I need to know, so the Irish workmen in leave town, and they leave behind a charter for Prince Hall and these men, these 14 other men, to start their own lodge. And that becomes African Lodge Number 1. And they started there in Boston. And it's not much longer after that where they began to expand. They began, they themselves began to charter new lodges in different states. And was, just, this, was this difficult for Prince, Law, uh, Prince Hall, I should say, um, you know, to come to grips with the, you know, the segregation that was a part of Freemasonry himself? And, and did that present, uh, I guess it didn't present any problem with his wanting to establish a, a Freemason Lodge himself, huh? Yeah, well, and, and, and that's really, really unique. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the um, what I think is a, a problem or, or a conflict in, in being a Christian and a Mason. But Prince Hall himself seemed to be, you read his writings, he's really a Christian, loves Jesus. Now, he looked at Freemasonry really as an opportunity for black men um, to be on equal footing with their 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 white peers in, in, in that community. And, and so he really didn't look at it as a challenge of not being accepted by the establishment, but he, he, he definitely pressed forward in, in, in bringing in men like him into 
to his lodge and, and expanding it out and, and sharing what he thought Freemasonry should be for all men. Hmm. Was he was he working at that time for the integration uh, of you know the bringing together of uh, Afro American uh, Freemasonry and you know whatever you'd like to call mainstream Freemasonry or or did he simply accept that this segregation was a reality that was uh, I mean he was an abolitionist that's what confuses me you know. Yeah, exactly. And he, and he, and he, he's trying to establish equality and have opportunities <clears throat> for blacks in that community. But he doesn't seem to be so concerned with recognition with the um, white masons or um, ministry masons in that community. Obviously, it's a concern to him. He has a legitimate charter from the Grand Lodge uh, of England, the Mother Grand Lodge. So why can't so why aren't the, the mainstream masons who spring from the same well source, you know, Grand Lodge England, why aren't they considering him as unequal in, in this in this organization that is supposed to look beyond creed, um, race, and things like that? So yeah. that's a yeah. I mean, yeah, he couldn't have lived in the vacuum and not been bothered by that. I mean, could he could he walk into um, a mainstream lodge at that time, or was he forbidden? He, he would definitely have been rejected, and there's there's no record at that time that Prince Hall was ever received or welcomed into any lodge in that area. Um, this must have this must have been, and I, I I certainly realize that you know it reflects the zeitgeist you know in the day. It, it reflected, you know, the segregation, the reality of, uh, you know, America at that time. But it must have been a bitter pill for him to swallow to the extent that, you know, he had established himself as the abolitionist. But nevertheless, I, I maybe I've, I'm beating a dead horse here. Uh, he, 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 he nevertheless decided that Freemasonry was important, and uh, and you said as a as a kind of step. Toward equality, is that correct? Yeah, definitely seems to be the case, and 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 so when the expansion begins, we begin <clears throat> to see more of that, you know, to in Philadelphia, in New York, and on to Ohio, and and once Prince Alfred Nation reaches Ohio, it really becomes unique. In, in, in this way, now we're talking about in the 1800s. And so slavery is, is really in, in full force, and the Civil War is coming. And so the Prince Alfred Masons in Ohio, what they began to do, especially a guy by the name of Stringer, he was a grandmaster, that's grandmaster's the head of a Grand Lodge in Ohio, or in the state, in their jurisdiction. And so with Stringer and these fellows began to do in Ohio, they start to go down the Underground Railroad and establish lodges and in all these different communities along the Underground Railroad going all the way down south, all the way to Alabama and Louisiana. And not only are they establishing churches, I mean lodges, but in the same cities and towns, in, in the same buildings where they're establishing lodges, they're establishing churches, Protestant churches, sometimes even with the same name. And so this is how Prince Hall Freemasonry and the black church 
become intermingled in such a way that's going to last for, for the next hundred or so years where the lodge in a black community and the church in a black community are synonymous. They have the same leaders, the members belong to the same organizations, and the community, black communities, they look to the lodge and the churches for support. So it's really, first off, the nation is so ingrained with the black experience in America that, that, yeah, I really don't think people really appreciate it or know um, the history there. No, it's, 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 coming as, it's coming as news to me because wasn't there some kind or at least in some areas of, of cross-pollination between uh, Freemasonry and even the Ku Klux Klan? Yeah, we, we sort of see that, um, that some of the members obviously – in the south of America, perhaps the north as well. Um, they, yeah, definitely they, they shared <clears throat> members. They shared rituals. You know, you see some elements of these old Ku Klux Klan rituals that have sort of feel Masonic, you know, but maybe perhaps that's all fraternal rituals that have these same things, you know, secret handshakes and things like that. So we can't necessarily, necessarily that they shared Masonic rituals per se, but we definitely know that they shared some of the same members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so there were some who could be Ku Klux Klan, uh, you know, during the weekend, and Freemasons uh, maybe on the weekend or that type of thing. Yeah, and good Christians on Sunday. Yeah, and, and Christians on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a miracle for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the melting melting pot indeed. Um, so. Tell me about your experience. Um, you, your, your dad was involved in Freemasonry, and it was something that you aspired to uh, as, a, as a young boy. And um, what was it like? Um, it's everything I, I, I thought it would be, definitely. I, I, I've always loved ritual, always loved pageantry. In Freemasonry, it offered me all that. It, it gave me a sense of self-esteem, you know, with all mm. the titles and mm. decorations and, you know, and, and, and things that it, it puts upon you. It, it definitely made me feel good. It gave me leadership opportunities, opportunities to speak. Um, so Freemasonry, you know, you know, people always said that in Freemasonry that you shouldn't become a Mason until, you know, your 30-something. I think that was because, I mean, maybe at that time, you know, you know yourself and you understand yourself. But as a young man who didn't know herself, I got into Freemasonry. Like I said, it became who I was. It's how I identified myself. I was David the Mason. You know, not David yeah. the Jew or David the Christian. I was David the Mason. And so it was, wow. um, yeah, it was exactly who I was. And at, at that time, at that point in my life, that was how I got through life. That's how I understood life, what it, what it taught, its teachings. Freemasonry takes elements of the operative Mason, maybe his hammer, his gavel, maybe his his um, his level or trial, and it, it takes those things that a regular Mason uses, and it applies a spiritual meaning to it. And so, mm-hmm. for instance, um, uh, uh, operative Mason he will use, uh, say, a, a level to make sure uh, a brick is. Level, or let's say a square. He would take a square to make sure a brick is square before he, you know, use it to a building. Whereas a Freemason, I would be taught to take that same square 
and apply it to my life. I should be an upright person. I should always be on the square. You know, we hear these words, you know, floating around in our regular vocabulary. You know, are you on the square? That's where yeah. you think. So, yeah, I, I would take those things that Freemasonry taught and apply it to my life. That was my religion, Freemasonry was. Well, that's that's fascinating. Um, you know, it's interesting, as you were saying that, um, how how the square, for example, became part of our our language. When I was younger, when I was a, a, a kid, Freemason, <clears throat> um, the square was was kind of a had, it had negative connotations. You know, oh, he's square. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that's uh, related at all. I don't know where the where the uh, that kind of language even came from. But nevertheless, um, okay. So this was fulfilling to you in a in a ritualistic sense. It, it also helped you with self esteem to the extent that um, you know you you you're advancing in Freemasonry. And and how far do you advance? Well, I eventually became. Um, <clears throat> On, on a local level of a local lodge, the highest office is the Worshipful Master. Uh, I became probably one of the youngest Worshipful Masters in the state at the time at 26. That was in 1999, 1998. Maybe I was turning 26. I don't know, but it was 1999. was the year I served. Um, from there, I went to the Grand Lodge, held various different appointed offices. The highest one I ever held was your right Worshipful Deputy Grand Lecturer. In this jurisdiction, that office, he is the representative of the Grand Master of the state in a district. So as a deputy, I was over all the lodges in western Ohio. As far south as Middletown and far north is Lima, which is near Toledo. So in, um, as far as my writing went, you know, I was a, quite a writer in Freemasonry. Um, I started uh, research Lodge, I mean Research Society, we had a publication that was quite well read. Um, I became a fellow of the Philady Society. That was a well-known research society in Prince Alfred Masonry. I had been excuse, invited... Excuse me, what, what, what is that called again? Philades. It's a Greek word. Um, I think it means... Uh, I'm sorry, you caught me there. It might mean light or something like that, Philades. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But no, it's the fine. research society in Prince of Freemasonry. I was made a fellow in that. And um, overseas, in this group named Australian Masonic Research Council, they invited me to write a book in 2003 about Prince of Freemasonry. And I wrote it, and they invited me out to do a lecture tour of all the research writers in New Zealand, <clears throat> Australia. So, um, so yeah, I a lot of decorations in Freemasonry and, and had a lot of exposure. And I was quite a prolific writer. When you became uh, a very young, worshipful grandmaster. No, just master. Uh, yeah. Oh, just master? Yeah, just worshipful master. <laughs> worshipful master, okay. Okay. Yeah, were there, were there um, I'm not asking you to, you know, I don't want you to get in trouble here, but, you, you know, were there secrets that you learned that, what is often called the porch masons, you know, the, the lower level masons uh, did not know, or were you still pretty much in a continuum with them? I, I, see, I have no idea. That's why I'm asking. And there's a system of degrees in Freemasonry, you know, in your local lodge, 
then your various rights, your York right, maybe your Scottish right. So, so yeah, I, I, I was active in all the degrees, and I was a Scottish Rite Mason, you know, the 32 degrees, and I was a York Rite Mason, and a and a secret select master, and Knights Templar, and all these different different orders. But in the lodge itself, yeah, in, indeed, the worship master, you know, you, there's a past master degree, so you would know things as a past master, a person who had been set as an active worship master. Yeah, that's your regular master masons who have received the third degree. Don't know. But um, in the lodge, all masons are considered equal. You know, as far as master masons of the third degree are considered equal. Uh, yeah, equal but the worship, what about the uh, grandmaster? Uh, the grandmaster, that's more administrative. Um, so he's elected by... It depends on your jurisdiction. He may be elected by all the past masters of all the different lodges in his jurisdiction. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but a worship master is the highest office in the lodge. And a grand master, he's the highest administrative officer of all the lodges. Well, David, why is there, why is there such a reluctance on the part of Freemasonry? to confess itself to be a religion. I mean, where you have a body of teaching and where you have ritual, right. just from a sociological point of view, you, by definition, you're involved in a religion. You, you, you know, I, I think, <laughs> you know, because the majority of Freemasons are Christians, you no know, Protestant Christians, you know, church-going Christians. Um, and so... I think just the psychology there as well. I'm not. I'm not going to admit that I'm in a religion and I'm another religion. You know, just like a, you can be a, a Catholic and a Mormon at the same time. I think you know yeah. in your head that well, I can't call Freemasonry religion if I'm already a Christian because there's a conflict there. I can't have a conflict in my life like something. That's the reality of it. But it, but as well, I think there's some. I see sometimes, you know, I read writing about different Masons, and I wrote about this issue when I was a Mason. You know, when I was a Mason, I called for Mason religion. And I was able to do that because I was agnostic. I didn't have any ties to any religions. So I was able to say, yeah, for Mason religion, I looked at it, I said, there is a God, um, there is a system of beliefs, um, and, 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 and yes, it, it doesn't offer salvation, but it definitely says for Masonry that if you live your life according to these teachings, then you're better off for it. So it, it may not be, you may not use the word salvation, but the same theme is there, that you have a better life if you do this. So there are a number of, of elements of ritual, of I mean, of religion there. But, well, yeah, and again, again, to the extent that you have a body of teaching and to the extent that, you know, there are secrets, to the extent that, um, I mean, even the Catholic Church doesn't have secrets. Um, but you have a body of teaching and you have ritual. By definition, you have uh, religion. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it doesn't matter where you where you go in the world, where you see these things combined and where it, where it becomes an integral part of one's moral, ethical life and belief system, you have a religion. And I guess the reason I even press the question, not to you, but you know, just simply trying to find out what Freemasonry thinks about it, 
is because you know we we constantly hear and we have you know from the beginning freemasons were you know there were quite a few of the founding fathers in this country who were freemasons but there was this you know insistence on a separation of church and state but as i look at it it seems to me that it wasn't really uh, a wall of separation between church and state it was simply the ejection of one which was essentially or the assimilation of one and, and all the transvaluations that are involved in that right. or the rejection of the you know exclusive claims 2000 year old claims of christianity and the, the replacement of a new religion that is not acknowledged as a religion hmm. so it, 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 it strikes me it strikes me strikes me as a trick <laughs> yeah, you sort of, yeah, it's like an ethos of free base there as well, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, in other words, you know, we can't we can't say that we're a religion because we believe in the separation of church and state. Um but but essentially, um we're in charge, you're not any longer, you know. And uh and we've got our insignia on the dollar bills and you know, and when we watch PBS at night we see Ben Franklin telling us to ask and that kind of thing. And so what we have is the uh, Freemasonry, which seems to be oriented to the new, to the future, to the progress, to a new understanding of liberty, against what? Against the old world. And everything about the old world was supposed to be dismal and miserable. And, you know, Freemasonry represents the liberation, the breaking of the chains of what? Breaking of the chains of religion. Now, I, you, you you say that, uh, you know, many Freemasons also go to church, and that's fine, so so long as it's assimilated <laughs> into Freemasonry. It's like the Pantheon, you know? In ancient Rome, you were, in, you know, we were, all the early, earliest Christians were invited to, to light incense to the gods. This is true. And if you light, if you light incense to the gods... Hey, you, you can go to the bread and circus. You know, uh, you might even have a have a uh, a, a cask of wine with uh, Caesar. But if you don't, you're going to be ejected. Yeah. Maybe even become a happy meal for a lion. <laughs> it, it definitely, you know, Freemasonry is a child of the Enlightenment. I mean, is um, yeah. You see that, and you see that, like you said, that rejection. Of the old school, or what you call the old school, the ejection of the Catholic Church. Yeah, the substitution of a new light, the enlightenment. Yes. You know, exactly. it, seemed, it has always seemed to me that there's a certain arrogance in the very concept, because the enlightenment <laughs> presupposes that everything that came before it was dark. Was dark, yeah. There was a dark age. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. And so we have uh, two lights, like we do in Scripture. We see, you know, there's there's the Luciferian light, you know, the the yeah. sun of the morning, and then we have Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world, the morning star, you know. Exactly. Okay, but you know, I'm I think, sorry. I think, yeah. most, I think you know, most Freemasons, I would say, at least in this country, or the ones like I've known in different countries, um. They do join the order, not for any understanding that it's going to offer any sort of 
religious benefit or any sort of alternative truth, but they do join for the brotherhood. The, the um, let, let's let me get away from the wife for a while, yeah. um, and to hang with the fellas, and and you know have some time for me, and and it, it and it is a brotherhood in that sense. I don't think most Freemasons, at least in this country, um, really get into or really concerned with the alternative truth that's being offered. Well, you know, it's interesting to me, um, in addition to all the, the rest of this here, is I, I've always thought to myself, well, you know, Freemasonry has still got to be very powerful to the extent, and to the extent that it propagates, you know, new values, new ideas, new concepts of liberty and all of that, but also to the extent that it's about the only organization in the United States today that that still prohibits women, and 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 they're hardly and they're and they're hardly. I mean, good lord! If you and I wanted to start a little club, just a smoking club, to have a cigar, and we put a sign up, "No women allowed," you and I would be you know, we would be lambasted, we'd be paraded before the press. Yet at the, yet at the Grand Lodge, you know. Uh, you know, the Masons are going. I mean, goodness, I don't even think the cook is a woman. And, and <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to have one kind of apron, not the other kind. Right, right. And, uh, now, 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 you know, Masons will, will point and say, well, look over there. There are some women Masons. And yeah, they're not with us. They're not regular. Yeah. They, don't come from, yeah. they don't come from the Grand Lodge of England. But you yeah. can go join those. If you want to be a woman Mason, there you go, right there. Yeah, kind of a kind of a make believe Mason. Yeah. Separate people sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and hardly do we ever hear from even the most radical of feminists a protest. Yeah. And I've often wondered I've often wondered, is this because, you know, so much is tied up in terms of civic advancement? And there are so many Masons who are I don't say the Masons run the world. It takes, a, it takes a lot of groups and persons and ideologies to, to make our crazy world today. But, you know, nevertheless, you know, there is a, there is a kind of, um, you know, the handshake and, you know, and if you do your best and if you are square and if you, and if you carry the compass in your heart, that type of thing, um, you know, we will try to advance you. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe, some, maybe some of the ladies... Yeah, maybe some of the ladies when they look up through the glass ceiling, they they see a Masonic apron. Perhaps, perhaps as well. Though maybe it's a sense of appeasement, you know, with the Eastern stars. You know, you have these appendant orders where Masons' wives and daughters and, and so forth mm. can be looked to. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely you don't see the protests or the signs outside of Masonic Lodge with the with the no. radical feminism. No. No, let's let's you and I start a Starbucks, and uh, you know put a sign up, uh, you know, woman's entrance over there across the street, and uh, you know, but you can't come in here, and and you and I are in jail. <laughs> you know, you know, so it's very strange. But but okay, so so tell me um, how you uh, it, you know you you advanced in in. Uh, Freemasonry, it did mu it did much good for you. I mean, nobody doubts that. There were very, very fine Freemasons. We, we, the whole world knows that. 
even those of us who disagree with the ideology of Freemasonry, we, we, we accept the fact that these are our neighbors, you know, so let's love our neighbors. And, and you know, it's it's different. And and uh, I used to go to the Shriner Carnivals when I was a kid, and not exactly Freemasonry, but, you know, somewhat similar, I guess. And uh, I, had, uh, I had friends uh, that were in Demolay and things like that. And, um, so the benefits accrued. So what disenchanted you? What happened? What's next? Um, it, it definitely wasn't a matter of disenchantment so much as it was just becoming Catholic and accepting what the church teaches. Now, when I um, when I encountered suffering in life, when I when I did go to prison, we didn't talk about that, but when I when I did um, encounter problems in my life, you know, it was the Masons, people from my lodge, um, guys I know met overseas that was really there for me, you know, helping me with a lawyer, um, giving my wife money to help her out, wow. um, stayed in touch with me when I was in, in prison. Even when I was in prison, yeah. they would help my wife out, calling her, writing me. Masons who I met while I was in prison, who was wardens in prison and, and corrections officers who always coming to see me in my in my cell or out on the yard, asking me how I'm doing, do I need anything, so forth. Was, was, <laughs> this, was, this, was, this was before you were a Christian? This was before. Um, now, as far as, as far as you know, Mason still taking an interest in my well-being. Um, that was yeah. That was even after I became a Christian and converted to Catholicism. Um, okay. Okay. So concerning yeah, the, concerning the disenchantment, when I did convert to the church in Catholicism uh, in 2006, um, it was understanding. I, I knew going into RCIA that that I couldn't be both. I couldn't be a Freemason and a Catholic. So it was a clear choice that I was making. Yeah. And, you know, that, historically that wasn't an arbitrary decision. I mean, Freemasonry was born essentially in opposition to Christendom. And, and um, you know, and it was a, an enlightenment, uh, as they called it, and and, um, and it was pit against uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, very seriously. And even even those who were not exactly Freemasons, people like Thomas Jefferson and them, they all participated in the Enlightenment views, the diminution of Jesus Christ. You know, um, Jefferson took the scissors and paste to the Gospels, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> I think quite literally. And, and uh, he invented, essentially, you know, he transvalued, Jesus Christ into something different. Benjamin Franklin, who was a Freemason, um, and quite a rowdy young man, as I understand it, he, uh, he was he was well thought of by some of the looser women in Paris. But <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> he also, you know, had no time whatsoever for Orthodox Christianity uh, of any of any kind. And uh, certainly not Catholicism, exactly. you know. And oh, I believe Benjamin Franklin is he the one that wanted to make the turkey our national bird? I believe Who, I read that. Yeah, he didn't want the he didn't want the eagle. He wanted the turkey to be the national bird for our country. I mean, imagine that the turkey, you know, sitting right there when you come in the White House or on a on dollar bill. 
mean, that would have been yeah. Yeah. That would <laughs> <be weird>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I, I'd never heard that. Boy, that's fascinating. <laughs> but Franklin, Franklin is a fascinating man. But yeah, he's um, very but 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 can we can we go back to that dark spot in your life? I mean, do you? When you and I spoke earlier, you said you didn't mind talking about that. But on the other hand, I don't want to force it. It's entirely oh, up to no. you. You you came to a dark point in your life. Yeah. Right. Um, what happened? So I began working as an accountant. I graduated, you know, in 1997 with a degree in, degrees in business and accounting and management. So I began working at um, um, in 2000. 2000 as a senior accountant at a, at a local university, and from 2001 until 2003, I began embezzling mm-hmm. money. I was wiring money from their account into mine, um, and I, I knew I could get away with it, you know, as long as I stayed in the job, because due to circumstances, I had been given control over the um, financial operations where I could, you know, do things without being checked or presenting reports that weren't going to be challenged. So mm-hmm. what started as really enjoyment, because, you know, the, the wife and I at the time, we didn't need the money. This is really about me doing what was, you know, seeing what I could get away with and just having a rush, you know, stealing this money, and it was quite a rush. But this rush that I got from doing this turned into an addiction. As far as stealing money, you know, I really became addicted to it, which is strange. But in 2000, was there any precedent in your life? I mean, had you had you been quipping things before this, oh, or did this? Oh, yeah. So, oh, all right. So, so, so essentially, this was because you were you found yourself face to face with a new kind of temptation mm-hmm. when you were given when you were given the power. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. It was a, it was a new. There's a new challenge. You know, I had, this didn't happen in a vacuum, like you said. Um, you know, I'm always, throughout my life, I'm trying to see what I can get away with. What's the next thing I can get away with? Whether it's cheating on my wife or running a stoplight. You know, what can I get away with? Can I do this? So this is the next what can I get away with. And that's what I, uh, it was a challenge for me to see if I could. There was a lot of ego in it. There was a lot of pride. It was, But it was who I was. Um, so about in 2003, um, I began trying to stop on my own. I was, like I said, I was agnostic. With some deistic leanings, you know, sometimes I would believe in God when I felt like it, but generally I was agnostic. You know, you can't I would say, well, God made this, but you can't prove it. So in about 2003, I started doing what I can could to try to stop, and I couldn't. At one point, when I leave the country to go on this book tour inside Prince Hall, I, I think, well, maybe... Maybe this would do it. Maybe I can get away for these six weeks and I'll be able to stop stealing this money. I'll get back and, you know, I'll be fixed. You know, I'm not back two weeks from the tour where I'm back doing my old tricks again. So mm. that now, didn't do it. That, that book tour, that was, you said, Inside Prince Hall, that was the name of the book that you wrote about uh, Freemasonry, correct? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um. So, about in October 2003, I was watching my daughter Deja, my middle daughter. She was playing in, a, in my office, and, and I got to thinking that I want to spend the rest of my life, you know, with my kids. 
And um, but I knew that there there was a problem. You know, I was doing some things that wasn't going to allow me to do that. And so I got on my knees in my office that day, and I um, and I and I said, God, if you're real, then you should be able to help me stop stealing this money. And the next morning, I woke up, and it was it was strange that <laughs> I didn't have any desire to steal anything. I, I really can't explain it, but it was like a, a, a sick feeling would come up in, in, inside of me while I even would think about, man, I, I want to steal or, or do something. So I go to work, and I'm sitting on my computer, and whereas before I would have this urge, hey, go to wire some money and get into the account. You know, on this day, it was like I, I, a sick thought emerged in my head where, that said I, I couldn't do that. So at that point in time right there, Stephen, you know, I, I wasn't ready to believe in any Jesus or anything like that, but mm-hmm. that's the day I started being an agnostic, and I definitely became a deist. I said, okay, God, you're real, but you're not interested in my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like that. So, um, I, and, and I tell you what, and not only did he help me get over that addiction, but I even got a promotion at the, at the job um, that really took me away from addiction altogether. And I knew if I took that job that there was a 50-50 chance that they would find out what I was doing in my old job. But I knew I had to get away from addiction, and I knew that um, that um, if I stayed in the job, you know, there's a chance I might go back, you know, to stealing that money. So, yeah, I took the promotion. And a few months later, <clears throat> six months later, five months later, they found out what I did in my old job, and I was arrested. How did they find that out? Just do an audit? Yeah, so the new person who took the job, um, yeah, they're doing the audit, this audit time. The external auditors are coming in to do an audit. They're getting everything ready. They're reconciling the books, and they see that there's some money missing. And so they start digging, and that's when they found out. I was arrested in my office on May 13th, 2004, checking out the May, thir- May 13th? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of 13ths. It's funny in this whole experience. All these things happened on the 13th. You know, I always thought later I would understand what happened to my mother Mary's intercession in my life. So, yes. um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So they placed a $750 bond on me, no cash, so I can't get out of the county jail. I'm in there for about eight months. You know, before I thought, well, hey, this is white collar crime. You know. Um, maybe probation, maybe just a couple years. Yeah, everybody, everybody's yeah. doing it. Yeah, sure. You, yeah, get to, you, you, you get to be with the rich and famous behind bars, yeah. Right, yeah. that's what I thought. You know, that, yeah. that, was a, that was a risk I took. It was a calculated risk, and that was what I thought the consequences may be. Turns out that they want to give me, um, they were talking initially maybe 18 years, maybe 30 years. Um, eventually, you know, it gets whittled down to nine. And so mm-hmm. I realized I realized I'm going to prison. Um around Were you to may I ask you in terms of the sentencing, were you treated fairly or do you think uh you know, being an Afro American man you were discriminated against in terms of the sentencing or what? It's hard it's really hard to say because there, there was a lot of politics involved. Like I said, I stole the money from the university. 
And it was not the prosecutors who were really pressing for the time. It was the university itself because they were trying to get money from the government. They were claiming that they didn't have a whole lot of money, but the government was able, hey, well, the state was, you know, state of Iowa was saying, well, look at, you know, this guy. He, he found, you know, half a million dollars, so he must have some money. So, um, yeah, the university was really the ones who was pressing for me to get um, punished. So, mm. yeah. So I, I, I can't say there was a, it was a issue of race. You know, it was, it was okay. a predominantly black, okay. a predominantly black university that I worked at. So. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I, I would say that yeah, the whole process really didn't, you know, involve that. But around October, I believe, when I realized I'm going to prison for quite a while, I decide to, you know, this night, I call up my family and I tell them goodbye. Mm. And I'm in my head, I'm thinking, well, maybe if I kill myself, my daughters will get my insurance money. I'm still thinking about money in my head. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I decide to take my life that night. And because uh, I, you know, everything, everything that mattered in my life was gone. You know, the money, the, none of that stuff mattered. The degrees, my little Masonic fame. Um, I was going to see my kids for nine years. It sounded like a, a long time. And so my life, what I knew, was over. I had lost everything. So my answer was to, to that was just quitting. You know, mm-hmm. was there any, wasn't any reason to live anymore. So um, I got on my bed that night in the county jail and Put a plastic bag over my head, uh, tied a tight rope around my neck, and yeah. um, began to turn myself so I could tighten up the rope and, you know, suffocate myself by asphyxiation. So yeah. it was in about the second or the third turn when I hear a voice. And the voice is clear as day. Um, and it says, he says, I love you. Oh. I'm here. I love you. I'm here. And and I hear this, and immediately upon hearing it, you know, I ask the internal question, well, who is that? And the answer that comes back was, is Jesus. Mm. And, and, and I couldn't, and I, I couldn't, it was easy to believe, but it was hard to believe at the same time, because when I was deputy, yeah. when I was deputy over all these lodges as, an, as a mason, and I was more, really, I was more anti-Christian than I was anything. I would go into the lodges, and I would tell these men that they couldn't pray in the name of Jesus. Because I had been a ruler for Masonry. It's supposed to be, you know, um, non-sectarian. So we're not supposed to pray in the name of Jesus. We're not supposed to sing any church songs. But we were in the lodge. Um, so I would go into the lodges. Since I had the authority now, I'm represented to the Grand Master. I would tell these guys, I would say, you can't pray in the name of Jesus. Um, you can't sing these church songs. And so I was really persecuting Christians in that sense in the lives. And this is the same Jesus who comes and tells me when I try to take myself out, that he loves me, that he's here for me. You know, I hated him. I hated hearing the name. I didn't want to hear the name. That's why I used to tell those masons that they couldn't pray in that name, not because it was a rule, because I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to hear that name, Jesus. I hated that name. But this is the Jesus that came and told me that he loved me. Uh-huh. And I, I still, I still can't believe that to this day. I mean, I deserved to kill myself. I wasn't letting my daughters go to church because some um, they heard at church that only Christians go to heaven. And, and you know, definitely, I don't believe that now. 
you know, in a different sense. But in then, back then, I really didn't want to hear that. And so, and this is the same Jesus that tells me that he's here for me, and I wasn't, I wasn't ever there for him. So, um, yeah, he saved my life that night, and it made all the difference in my life. And, um, and that, from that, from that night on, everything changed. I, I no longer could deny that Jesus was real, and he was interested in my life. So that's made all the difference. That, that, uh, boy, that's that's so moving to hear that. I mean, it's just, it's so wonderful to hear that because, as you say, you were in extremis. I mean, it was going to be all over shortly before that. You did not expect this. And all of a sudden you come, and the one that you had opposed was now calling you back and telling you to stop. <laughs> That's a, that's beautiful. That is oh, thank praise the Lord. I mean, that that really is just a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, what happens next? Uh, you so take the, you take the plastic bag off your head, or what? <laughs> oh, you mean that night? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that night. Um, yeah, I, I stopped what I was doing, obviously, um, and I actually, you know what? There was a little Bible that um, I used to belong to a fraternity when I was in college, Omega Sci-Fi, and this little brother, and the brother of mine who was a preacher, he used to come see me in the um, in the county jail. He gave me a Bible one time, my name on. I still think I still have it. And so that Bible was right behind my head on my on my bed in the county jail. And I got out that Bible, and for the first mm-hmm. time in my life, Stephen, I read the Gospels, and I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I couldn't believe it. That this Jesus was, um, wow, he was real. And I couldn't believe the things he was doing that, that was recorded and written about. I was like, wow. And it was the first time in my life where I said, wow, Jesus is real. And I, and I, I smiled. I knew it because I heard it. But now I'm reading these stories and saying, nobody can write this type of stuff, man. No, <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's what happened after that, that night, yeah. That is that is too beautiful. I mean, that is just wonderful. And and oh my goodness, you know, time. Every time I I, I do this program, you know, I th- I think at the beginning, well, oh, we have ninety minutes. You know, it's marvelous. And and look, I got thirty nine minutes left here. So, oh, you know, so I, yeah, yeah. It just it just it just goes by so quickly. And uh, you know, some people when they get on the come to do the program, they think, oh, 90 minutes, you know, talking with hand. I mean, that's that's going to be in, interminable. And uh, But then it just goes by. Okay, so, all right, so from that point on, you had to finish your time in jail, correct? Yes, yeah, so I guess I go to the um, Bolita County Jail on December 13th, <laughs> and I go to prison, and um, so I end up, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I start my time, I'm at a medium Medium minimum prison. It's a regular prison, about 2,000 inmates. Um, it's not really hard time. Guys no. are there for all types of different things, but it is a it is prison. You still have to watch your back. You oh. have to play by the rules. You know, if you yeah. want your time to be easy, um, or you, oh, there's yeah. some things you can do if you want it to be hard. But um, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm telling you, for me, the definition of prison is not just you know, the idea of watching your back, but as soon as somebody closes the door on me and says, you can't get out, that's right. that's that's prison enough for me. <laughs> I mean, if, if, they, if, they, if they gave me pina coladas to drink every night, 
that that would be prison enough for me. You tell me I can't leave. Yeah, you know? You can't see your oh, kids, yeah. you can't see your family. Yeah, oh, yeah. my goodness. So, oh, no. Yeah. yeah. All right, so you, so how, how many years did you have to finish? Yeah, I only did six years in, in prison. But how uh, many got, years was this? How many years after the event? Oh. How many, how many years after the, the, the hearing of the Lord? Yes, that was 2004. And I got out of prison in 2010. I was still sentenced to nine years. I'm not, I'm still supposed to be in prison to this day. But, um, I got out early, three years early. Yeah. Good behavior. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, well, I prayed every day, Matt. <laughs> I did, That's I did good a behavior. <laughs> yeah, I did a rosary every day for it, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't act like a jerk in prison, so. It was huh? you re- yeah, I didn't act like a jerk when I was in prison, so the judge didn't have yeah. to reason to keep me in there. Yeah. Now, so did you go through the, you know, the sort of, I mean, when you when you hear the Lord and 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 then you're trying to reorient yourself after reading the Gospels, you went through the Protestant phase and converted to Catholicism all while you were in jail. Is that correct? All while I was in prison, yeah, I be like I began went to prison in 2004. Really, I'm starting in 2005. That's when I'm really January 2005. I get into a regular real prison, and from 2005. Yeah, I'm pretty much Protestant. I'm going to Protestant service in prison. Um, yeah, try to speak in tongues and yeah, I'm, I'm you know name it, claim it, you know uh, what's all those other things? Save, once saved, always saved. I'm, yeah, I'm for really, sure. I'm yeah, because yeah, that's my atmosphere. I'm believing all that stuff. I'm studying that stuff. But then a question emerges in my head because as a as a kid or as a teenager, one of the problems I'm having with you know these these Christians. These Protestants, probably due to my upbringing, I'm being bounced around. Is what's the truth? You know, all these guys say you go, you guys say you believe in Jesus, but you, um, what's all these different denominations? Why does this church teach that and this church teach this? I, there's a big issue in my head. So <laughs> now I'm a Protestant, <laughs> and yeah. I'm still having that issue. So I finally yeah. get surrounded to asking the question. What happened to the churches in the Bible? What happened to the churches that Jesus and the apostles started? What happened to those? And so that question right there, and um, asking God to, you know, lead me, because I'm confused right now, really began my journey to the Catholic Church. That is, that, that is amazing, because, you know, that is precisely the journey so many of us. I was born a Catholic. I was uh-huh. baptized a Catholic as a baby. But, you know, I drifted away from the church, and I just wanted to be a worldly young guy. And then when I came back, when I actually had my first, you know, serious um, Christian experience, it was outside of the Catholic Church. It was in a a Nazarene coffee house. And so, yeah, oh, yeah, it was very, very very ecumenical, you know. I mean, we we had people from every single walk and life. And so I I had to ask those very same questions because... There was no agreement, and in fact, sometimes there could be heated disagreement on what the sacraments were. You know, what, would it be the rapture? You know, were they premillennialists, postmillennialists? Uh, you know, di- uh, dispensationalists. Uh, was it Jack Finnipi, or was it uh, 
you know, that's one of that one. So, so in, inevitably, you begin asking precisely the question you asked. What, what happened to these churches? One of the thrills I get to this day is there's somebody in Thessalonica, Greece, mm-hmm. who visits my little website. And when I see Thessalonica there in the stats, wow. I get a little I get a little bit of a thrill, if you know what wow. I mean. You know, yeah, because there's there's a there's a Christian there, you know, who comes and and who comes, you know, fairly regularly and has for years. And uh, but anyway, but okay, so we you, you went through what so many of us, so many people since the Reformation have gone through that, and. Um, but but moving into Catholicism, it must have seemed very bizarre to you. <laughs> Boy, I, you know, you know, a fun God. <clears throat> you know, you, you can't you can't you can't tell Dad that you're going to be uh, reading a few encyclicals by the Pope. <laughs> no, and I didn't want to be a Catholic. I, I mean, I did. Let alone a black Catholic. I did. I never heard of a black Catholic. <laughs> it, 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 just, it was weird to me. I mean, I grew up in a Catholic neighborhood, you know, right next to a Catholic school and Catholic high school and nunneries and police homes. But the only thing I knew about Catholics was that they wore shorts, you know, little shorts to um, church. You know, they didn't dress up in my neighborhood. I just thought they were weird in, in all white. I, didn't, you, I, I hope you know today that most Catholics in the world are either black or Hispanic now in I Africa. Know yeah, I, I mean, we in this country, it's true because, you know, we had, you know, in my case, the Irish, you know, immigrated over here. And then there were the German Catholics in Minnesota, and I don't know who was out in Ohio. But it was all these ethnic groups, and they tended to be lily white, you know. But it's certainly not certainly not the case worldwide. Um, as a matter of fact, if it wasn't for the uh, the church in Africa, you know, we would we would really begin to think we're in a period of decline, you know? <laughs> but, but, yeah, but go, but go on, sir. Oh, um, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I fought God along the journey, but he definitely he showed me every grace and every sign I was on the right path. My, my journey began historical, and I wanted to know the history, like I said. And later on, it became theological. I, I said, well, Okay, the Catholic Church can prove itself historical. Okay, it can show me every bishop of Rome. It can it can show me all these writings of the fathers. Okay, but they they're not teaching what they used to teach. You know that that was that was you know I said so that answer that little statement right there gets blown out the water. I do find out that exactly what they're teaching back then in the first century, second century, the same stuff they're teaching today. The Eucharist, the devotion to Mary, purgatory. You name it, it's the same stuff, and so um, I, cu- I couldn't, I couldn't. So then, then I said, okay, well, all right, it can prove itself historically, it can prove itself theologically. Well, let me see what this mass is about. <laughs> so I went to Catholic mass, sat in the back, and, uh, and so sat in um, the back. Oh my goodness, yeah. you, you should, you should have been right up front. Go on, <laughs> and. Uh, in, in SARS, I still remember that mass. It was a Father Toner from um, St. Joseph Parish in Plain City, Ohio. He came into the prison. He was a prison um, priest. And um, if I had any reason still not to believe or any reason still not to want to be a Catholic, it was abolished on the first mass I went to. It was 
I fell in, I fell in love with the mass. It was everything. It had what I loved, what Freemasonry had. It had the peasantry. It had the ritual. But it had an atmosphere that the senses couldn't perceive, really. I just knew I was in the right place. Or like they say on, you know, on the journey home or whatever, I knew I came home. Um, and, and so it was just, it just felt right for me. And By the so way, I, have, you been, have you been on Marcus Grody's journey home? No. No, but I'm. Oh uh, well, listen. Somebody send this to somebody send this to Marcus Grody, please, because this man needs to be on that program. But <laughs> uh, no, you have a, you have such a wonderful testimony here. Um, you know, you're sending chills down my back. So, you, so, so you, in the Eucharist, beyond words, everything is confirmed for you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you just uh, at have that a, mass. No, yeah, yeah, at that. First mass, and that's when I, be, I I talked to the priest. Uh, maybe the second mass. I went to another one. I think I talked to him after that, and said, "What do I need to do to become Catholic?" And it was a buddy of mine <laughs> who was there. Um, I think his name was Lee. I gave him a little book. I found this little book by Patrick Madrid. Um, with his, sure. he had his, he had his. I don't forget the name of it, but he a guy was on the cover with. He's waving the Bible. He looked really angry. And so I get, I read the book. I avoided the book for a long time. I said, what is this angry white guy doing on the cover? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to read that. It's probably some fundamentalist stuff. So eventually I read it, and that helps me, you know, with some things. I give it to Lee, and Lee says, I want to be Catholic too. And so, wow. and so we, both, you know, we both begin the RCIA, and, and, so we begin, and so we started in about March of 2006 and August of 2006 were both confirmed into the church. Oh, my goodness. This was last year? Last 2006. Year? 2006. Oh, I'm sorry, 2006. That's right. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah I'm sorry. Oh, that is, that's, that, is so, that is something. And, <clears throat> okay, so move on. Yeah, you, you know, that from, from that point on, it's, it's just... Um, you know, I've been, since I'm behind the curve, you know, I became a, a Catholic as an adult. You know, I just spent a whole lot of time reading in prison for those next three years, <clears throat> three or four years, just trying to catch up. I read, you know, catechism twice. I'm reading every encyclical there is, you know, still reading scripture, reading every saint book I can get my hands on. <laughs> I love with, you know, um, Catherine of Siena and St. John of the oh. Cross. You know, I'm just falling in love with all the old stuff, the unknown. Oh, um, too, yeah. of the cloud of unknowing, and and um, you know the father. I, oh, yeah. Um, I got I got my hands on Faith for the Early Fathers, a three book series by Jurgens, and I'm immersing myself in that. And the next thing you know, I started expressing myself. My gift has always been writing, and so um, as a Freemason, I wrote. As a kid, I wrote. So now I want to write. You know what God has given me, and so I began writing, and that's what I've been doing. No. Is that is that is that um, how you you came to write Dead on Arrival? Uh, you know, Dead Arrival. You know, the first book I wrote in 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 while I was still in prison was a apologetic book. Well, you know, something that never be published, but it was something I had wrote. Next thing I began writing was a series of books I, I wrote on cooperating with God that's going to be released this year. But Dead Arrival is Dead Arrival: Seven Fatal Errors of Solo Scriptor was a book that just immersed out of intense conversations with a really good friend I have in prison who's a Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. He has he was quite a fanatic <laughs> about Sola Scriptor. 
and, and so one day, after, you know, after debating with him and being exhausted, I just put everything down. I just wrote it in, in one night. And, um, no, three nights. I'm sorry. I wrote over three nights. And, um, and, and so that's how that book came about. It's, it's now, it's now available, you know, on my website or Amazon. My website is <clears throat> davidlgray.info, I-N-F-O, davidlgray.info. It's available there and at Amazon. And it just, it's not so much in a, it is a, in a traditional sense. It is a defense of the faith. It is apologetics. But I, I don't try so much defending the faith as I go on offense. And, I, and I'm pointing out the errors of Sola Scriptura. And, and, and so, um, and that's that's the avenue that the, the book is. I think it's really interesting, and it talks about things that you really don't, um, you don't traditionally hear about, you know, what we believe about Sola Scriptura. So it's a really fun book. It's really short. But, yeah, it's, um, it's an answer to Ezekiel, and I dedicate it to him. Well, that is that is marvelous. The name of the book is Dead on Arrival, The Seven Fatal Errors of Sola Scriptura, or the Bible Only. That's what that means in Latin. And um, and it's by David L. Gray. You can get it at Amazon, or you can get it at his website. And your website address again? David L. Gray, that's Gray for A, dot info, dot I-N-F-O. <clears throat> dot info. Okay, very good. So I, I, I hope they'll get it. I want to get a copy of it myself. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I... I, I Love to get a copy of it, and uh, and also I'd like to. Uh, I've already put up on BTR when this program is actually uh, in the can, as it will be uh, about a half hour after one o'clock today. Um, if you click on the title of your program, it'll take you to a, a page with your program on it, even though it's at the front page of BTR, but. Uh, I've also uploaded your book to it, so they can see your sure. book and just hit it and go directly to Amazon, uh, because I think that will be very important. Yeah, um, did you talk about your experience in jail and all of that? Um, no, not, not Dead on arrival book. makes me ask. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I didn't in that book. I sure didn't. But, um, well, you, you have another book to write then. Yeah, like, you know, my books on cooperating with God. I have a three series of books on cooperating with God. That's sort of like the same thing my my, my um, blogs are based on. How do we cooperate with God? How do we apply the teachings of scriptures to our own life in this age? And I incorporate um the teachings of the church, the writings of the saints, um just good. You write you write on pro life issues? Pro life issues. Um, the benefits of chastity and celibacy. Yeah. Yes, you true. even, you even, have written on fraud prevention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from an expert. Yeah, yeah, I'm on both sides. I was an internal auditor and I was a guy who stole the money, so I think I'm an expert on that. <laughs> well, you know, I don't, you know, it's very interesting. Um, as you were talking about that experience, and I do think you need to write a book about that experience because it is so moving. I mean, it begins, you know, with your the lowest point in your life, you know, and 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 you know, God must have also seen though that you were thinking of your children then, and you're thinking, you know, they're going to get the insurance money. Mm-hmm. So I'm here. My life seems lost. I'm going to, you know, you were going to give a gift away. 
and and uh, I don't know. There's a lot of grace working in your heart, David L. Gray. But at, at any rate, you you hear you hear the voice of the Lord, and that begins the journey. And then you then you have this the the stamina to actually look at the questions that presented themselves presented themselves at that point from that point on, and you know, you struggled with them and you and you, you moved through them in a marvelous way that aligns you, you know, with Christianity for the last 2,000 years. I mean, the Lord was not sleeping for 1,500 years until Martin Luther came along, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and we have to remind ourselves in all the storms that we see around us today and and let's face it, the world has infiltrated the church in many respects and we know that. And, uh, you know, the sexual revolution has, has disoriented everybody, and, you know, it, it's come it's come back to bite us, just like it bites everybody else, the teachers and the UN workers and the whole the whole bit. And, and everybody's been affected by this turbulent, these turbulent storms that we seem to be in. And sometimes it feels as if the Lord is asleep in the boat. Yes. Kind of the read mm-hmm. at the mass today, isn't it? Is, so. <laughs> yeah. So you, I, I really think you really need to do that uh, book. And I also think, and I'm serious here, I think somebody needs to send this program to Marcus Grody because, uh, well, you've heard the testimony yourself here. It's just, you know, a, a man who was in Freemasonry. And you notice he's not bitter about it. I mean, he, he talks about these were friends, and, and these Freemasons... You know, came to visit him when he was at his lowest point, and even after his conversion to Christianity, um, we have to love our neighbors. It's so important, no matter where they are. Good Lord, I look back at my ancestors. My ancestors were were uh, cannibal druids. That's oh. the truth. Oh wow. yeah, it goes back to the, the Celts. Oh yeah, we were we were uh, we were druids, and you know, today they sanitized. Uh, you know, the the New Age druids. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. That that meet at Stonehenge every year. Right. They sanitized it, you know, uh, and uh, but it it was brutal. It was a brutal, wow. brutal affair, and wow. uh, paganism is filled with despair. And and um, when St. Patrick came, we were we were saved, you know, as a civilization in the same way that individuals are are saved from their sin, you know, if we allow God to work in our lives, you know. Um, and what about your speaking? Uh, has that has that come to a grinding halt now that you say the forbidden name Jesus? <laughs> the um, outlawed, the only name in the world that's outlawed. <laughs> well, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm in the point of transitioning, obviously, from being a Masonic speaker to you know, speaking about um, those things that matter. That I think truly matter now. Um, so I'm just doing writing now, and this year I'm going to work on getting open the doors to some speaking engagements and start talking about a lot of things we talked about here today. Yeah. And how can, uh, you know, is it through your website that uh, people who would like to to hear your witness uh, can get in touch with you for speaking engagements? Exactly. That's the best way to get in contact with me, my website. Okay. So, uh, again, that is David... L. Gray, one word, 
dot info. Um, and I see a picture of you here. You're a handsome man. You look you look like you're about what six foot one. Is that do I get you right or what? No, my daughter is much shorter than me to get pictures. So yeah, I'm. I'm uh, oh, okay. Sure, okay. I'm yeah, you look, oh, you you look very tall there. You, I, I wouldn't mess with you. Uh, but anyway, and on your blog, you also you have a video that talks about your book. Um, there's also more information about you, and people can contact you. You also talk about your books, and uh, so that's that's the place to begin. Uh, what about uh, career? You know, one of the, if you watch Marcus Grody, you know it has been a cross for a lot of people. Um, you know, who convert to Catholicism, but you know find that you know. We, we, it's not like the, the Protestant milieu where somebody can just mm-hmm. sort of stand up and declare themselves the next charismatic leader, you know? Yeah, uh, the, yeah. church, the church is there. And, and while there is a, a lay apostolate and, and many laymen, as you know, uh, are involved in, in, in that, it, it's not always profitable. People, people uh, struggle. And uh, sure. what are you going to do? You know, all, all the time I was in prison after I became Catholic, um, the woman I was married to, you know, she divorced me when I was in prison. So after that, I really discerned for a number of years that I was going to enter seminary after um, I got out of prison. And my friend, you know, my friends were always picking me about that. Hey, really, you're going to be celibate? Like, that's the hardest thing to do in the world, you know, be celibate. But uh, yeah, I've been celibate all while I was in prison, still celibate, so that's not an issue. But I always knew uh-huh. once I got out of prison that um, – I would know whether I was called to that. So the first day I get out of prison, I go to mass and I look at the priest <laughs> and I say, "I think God has called me to that." I don't. <laughs> that, I definitely, really? know, definitely know that's that's not my calling. I don't sense that my calling yet is to the deaconate, but I, I definitely know that God has called me to continue writing and, and sharing what He's given me to share. So whatever door is open, open. I mean, professionally, um, I'm no longer an accountant, obviously, but, you know, I do well in sales, um, sell law care services for people, you know, chemicals for the law. So um, I, I do fine in that as far as the income. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really I, – I, one day I will hope to transition into maybe a professorship, um, teach maybe theology. But right now I'm just doing what I feel called to do, and that's right into share. So hopefully maybe a door opened up somewhere in the church, and, I, I, and I, I maybe I could sense I'm called to that. Well, I hope, you, I hope you'll never, ever get discouraged, you know, because it's, it's, it's very interesting because the Lord himself tells us, he says, you know, in the world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world, fear not. And, and But at the same time, we are almost in a in a position that is very similar to when our Lord himself walked the earth. I mean, he was born into an occupied land. Mm-hmm. The Pax Romana, you know, had essentially subjected the whole um, ancient world of his time, um, you know, under its boot. And uh, it was brutal. People, people didn't have much liberty. Uh, the only liberty they had was to, uh, you know, to to either to either obey or suffer the consequences. And uh, 
Today we don't have the Pax Romana, but sometimes we, it looks as though we have the Pax Americana. <laughs> <coughs> you know, I mean, you go, you go into Washington, D.C., and even the architecture looks like you're in ancient Rome. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and we've, you know, we've got our wars all over the world, and, and Christianity is, is uh, I've been talking about this lately at the blog, you know, it's, it is becoming the one name Christ's name is the, becoming the one name that is forbidden, unless it's mocked. I mean, Christianity <clears throat> is under attack. I mean, through, throughout the world, and, and it's not. Yes, yeah, you know, the Catholics are in every country. It looks like us, but you know, they're, they're taking out Protestants too where they can. Every that, any, any religion. Yeah. That's right. We're under attack. I mean, yes. and Jesus said, you know, they hated him first, so it, they would hate us. So we knew this time was coming. This time was no different than it was, you know, the first century, second century, when, you know, our hands was on the block. But now it's on a global level. It's a global crisis. Um, and God is going to bring us through it. And we just have to stay steadfast. And, you know, it, it was a time, you know, I, you know, Christians are still safe in this country generally. You know, we can still walk around and do the sign on the cross, maybe carry our rosaries in our hand. You know, our brothers and sisters can't do that in Pakistan. They can't even get a job because they're Catholic. Yes, yes. But um, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, um, you know, in this country, you know, we could be a spiritual martyr here. I like to use the word spiritual martyr. We can we can suffer spiritual martyrdom and really offer up our lives across. But, you know, a lot of our brothers and sisters throughout the world, they're, they're being called to be corporate martyrs. I mean, the day of martyrdom is back standing up for Jesus and, and you know, and, and standing by that. So it's, um, we, we have to get on our knees and, and pray for our brothers and sisters, you know, who are going through that and stay steadfast ourselves in this country. It's absolutely true. It is so true. I mean, because we just saw in, was it Egypt, uh, you know? Yeah. Just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, th th these people were slaughtered for for, for no decent reason. I mean, there's never a decent reason, but they were they were slaughtered for no reason, except that they were they were Christians. And and perhaps I don't know, perhaps some of the radicals thought they were, you know, getting back because of the occupation yeah. or whatever. But but there's a, you're absolutely right. It's a corporal martyrdom in many places in the world. Even in India, I mean, it would make Gandhi turn over on his grave, you know, that even in India, Christians can be dragged up by the hair in right. some places, you know. And uh, that is, that's not to say that all Hindus or all Muslims are like that. That's obviously not true. But there is peril everywhere. And all who live godly in Christ Jesus suffer persecution. One thing I know is that if you become, if we were to become, you know, total... Uh, you know, avant-garde, uh, liberal Catholics. You know, that's when the persecution stops. Oh, yeah. Because you're you're on the you're on Satan's side at that point. And that's why I love so much about the Catholic Church because it's it re, it's, it's always been countercultural, but even more so today, it, it is countercultural. We we see our, our, our brothers and sisters in, in the Protestant churches. They they seem in the churches becomes they seem to be becoming more and more like the world. Um, as far as the people who they allow to preach or whether they separate marriage and, and things, they, they seem becoming more and more like the world, but you just don't see that in the Catholic Church. And, and, and that's why, 
is going to be more difficult for us in the future if the world continues down this secular path. I mean, the church is countercultural now. I, I really don't know what word is more strictly countercultural, but it's, it's, it's things that you Listen, somebody, we, we seem to ha- we seem to have somebody that has called in. I wasn't soliciting phone calls, but do you have the right number? Hello? Hello? Oh, hi. I didn't know you huh? answered. <laughs> yes, I'm just calling in because I'm listening to the show. Um, actually, I know this gentleman, and I just, there's some things that I heard that I didn't know, and I'm so proud to um, be able to follow him and um just wanted to know that I'm proud of him and to keep encouraged and I'll just keep him in my prayers and to give his gift to the world Well that that's wonderful. You Okay, well that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well thank you. Thanks for calling. Um that was okay, bye bye. Uh, yeah, that person had been there for quite some time. Um, do you do you know who that was? Yeah, that's someone um, that's very, very, very special to me. <laughs> well, that, that's yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's terrific. Uh, <clears throat> um, well, and, and I'll tell you, there, there, I think you're going to be uh, you know special to a lot of people. But I guess the point I was trying to make is something that I have to remind myself every single day that the Lord said to us, you know, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's not something, you know, the once saved, always saved, where it's like, you know, we can pretty much uh, get away with anything, you know. We can, we, can, we can leave God, and if he comes back, you know, uh, and, we're, and our sins are blazing, um, you know, everything is going to be okay. No, a relationship is, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we all have to persevere through these difficulties that you were talking about. Yes. I mean, that's the only through, way. Through the persecution, even. Yeah, you know, Paul, Paul oftentimes talks about, I mean, there's, there's, there's a particular grace that we see when, when we go through the suffering. You know, oftentimes we just want God to take us out of it. Okay. Um, you know, he could have, you know, there's so many ways he could send the children of Israel around the Red Sea. He could send them around it or over it. But, but there, there's something that goes on there when we when we go through the Red Sea, and, and we know that God is with us when we go through it. I mean, he's right there. And so in the midst of these trials and persecutions in our own life, and even with the, uh, us persecuting us Christians for being Christians, for following Christ, God is right there in the midst with us, going through it with us. And that's, like you said, that's what we have to hang on to. And there's there's some grace and there's some strength and some comfort in that, I believe. Oh, absolutely. You know, and but, he, but the wonderful thing about your story, which we've seen so often throughout history, is that God was with you in your darkest moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I look at, if you, you look at the book of Ephesians, and someday I'd like to just go through the book of Ephesians here. You go through the book of Ephesians, and here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
urging everybody. He's urging them to continue to persevere in one doctrine, one faith, worshiping the one Lord. He's urging them to be humble and then to think that he was in chains when he was writing that. These were these were prison epistles. Right, that's true. That's true. I mean, you know, for many of us, it, you know, the the idea that um, okay, we have good news and bad news. The good news is that you're 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 going to grow spiritually, but the bad news is you're going to be in a dank prison, <laughs> in chains, with no temperature control, and uh, absolutely no internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you learn so much about yourself, don't you, when you go through it. Well, yeah, that's right. You know, I I say to my wife, you know, uh, there's a a person who used to. I think she I think she still does. She certainly uh, works for Catholic publications. Her name is uh, Amy. Oh, what was her last name? Amy. Oh goodness, forgive me, Amy. Well, at any rate. She she used to have up in the corner of her blog, it, it always uh, moved me and touched me at the same time. She says, she said, I think I can be a martyr if they kill me quick. <laughs> if they kill me quick. And I've often said to my wife, it was like, you know, that, that kind of resonates because I don't I don't think I'm, I'd be afraid to die. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'd quick in my pants and act like Woody Allen uh, if if the moment actually came, <clears throat> but torture is not something I'm 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 particularly interested in. Something like that, and uh, but then it reminds me that there are people in the world who are being tortured for their faith or just being tortured for for other reasons. And and the beautiful thing, Colossians one twenty four, is that we can take whatever small sufferings we have in our lives, whatever darkness we have in our lives, and we can offer it to those people so that they will meet in their darkness the Christ that you met in yours. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I, I pray for that. You know, having been there, in the, I think in a way that's unique to me, that I know God can do it. You know, if he did it for me, I know he'll do it for somebody else. And so, it's just, you know, let's not give up on anybody. You know, sometimes we have people in our family that's, you know, that just become black sheep or, or just lost people we know that's, you know, still, we know that they aren't living a life that we, we know they're capable of living, and they're not even interested in living a virtuous life. But let's not give up on them. I mean, let's not that they go by when we don't pray for them because God can do it. I mean, we just have to invite them into the situation. You know, I mean, I wasn't praying. You know, I, I wasn't praying to Jesus, you know, come save me. I was ready to kill myself. But there are people in my family, my grandmother, my friends who were praying for me, and they invited God into that situation, and he came in. And so we just have to keep inviting God in, and he's going to show up, and he's going to do something. Boy, and you know that from experience. I mean, that that is just uh, that is a that is marvelous, marvelous testimony for for anybody out there who is suffering, for anybody out there who is facing their darkness. You know, 
don't don't give up listen listen for the voice of God who can come and who can change things in that moment in that darkest moment Paul in chains writing those words of edification David L Bray you know in in jail at the, the bleakest moment of his life you know when he was his last decent thought was he was going to give the insurance money he had pl- the plastic was around his head the rope was around his neck and the lord came to this very intelligent very moving very eloquent young man who's trying to give his give his gifts to the lord um and for the benefit of, of humankind one last question we have 90 seconds uh david uh what can we do more for the black community in this country, for the African-American community, evangelistically? You know, is, is the, the door of the Catholic Church open to blacks in America? I mean, yes. I mean, do blacks in America know that the doors of the Catholic Church are open to them? You know, you know probably not. You know, 4% of the... Blacks, you know, blacks make up four percent of the Catholics in this country, whereas mm-hmm. blacks represent um, about fourteen percent of blacks in the country altogether. So there's a disparity there between four percent and fourteen percent. And I'm not saying there should be fourteen percent of blacks in the Catholic Church, but we should, you know, if if we are the universal church, which we are, we should look a little more like it. And I think there's a lot. We can oh do. yes. You know, to look more like our, our community. You know, I when I work, worked uh, with the homeless, I, I worked with some wonderful African American men and women who were on fire for Christ, but they all said the same thing. And so we we've got to do more. We've got to somehow be evangelistic. We've got we, we've got to show them the welcome arms of Christ. We are his feet, we are his hands, we are his welcome mat. David L. Gray, thank you so much for this testimony. Please write the book about uh, your experience in jail. And you can get David's book um, you know, through his website, through Amazon.com. Uh, and I hope uh, maybe we can talk again. Somebody send this to Marcus Grody, please. This man needs to get on EWTN, and he needs to talk about... Uh, He's not a, he's not afraid and and not ashamed to talk about all the experiences that he's been through and you can hear in his own voice uh, the power so God bless you David L Gray and uh, thank you very much for being a guest this afternoon thanks for having me and thanks for letting me share have a great one bye bye